It's Tuesday, September 24th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Special Ops, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Good to see you guys. Hey, hey. Thanks for being here. Howdy. Um, we're going to talk energy. We're going to talk chip makers. We're going to talk automakers. It's exciting stuff. But let's follow on our conversation from yesterday because we were out of the studio maybe three hours when the news broke that BlackBerry is going private, being bought by Fairfax Financial for $4.7 billion. That is a premium of, by my math, <laughs> just over 3% on the stock. Well, then you remember our exchange at that time, and you asked, yeah. who's buying who's, this? Yeah. And Barker was rather prescient in his answer. He's like, Canadians? Canadians. Well, lo and behold. Boom. Bill, yeah. Bill Barker Canadians. from Motley Fool Funds. Just Keep getting it, it done. Gotta family. Give him the, gotta give him, you know, give him the props where he, where he deserves. Yeah, you know, I, I see this deal, and on its face, you just kind of want to put your head in your hands because here you have in, an insurance company or an investment holding company buying BlackBerry. But I think their reasons for buying this are not necessarily what they seem. You know, the value, the value folks, they've been saying there's value in BlackBerry's enterprise business, its services business, they generate fee income. That doesn't work if you can't sell phones. <laughs> what Prem Watsa, the Buffett of the Great White North, as he's sometimes referred to, likes here is he likes the cash position and the patent portfolio. And on that basis, I think he's paying a fair enough price. BlackBerry never could have gotten fair value for its patent portfolio as a going concern. Because the market's not stupid about what their position is. Here, they have a well-capitalized partner. They can go ahead and sell this off in an orderly manner. Bill Barker made the point yesterday that we've seen this time and time again, particularly with hardware companies. Dominance does not last. It just... It just does mm. not last. So uh, he offered a cautionary tale for Apple shareholders out there. Shiny widgets. I think you look uh, at BlackBerry, though. I mean, that's a good situation of where – I mean, certainly, I think the point Mikey's making there is that it, maybe it's it's worth more in pieces than, yeah. than as the whole that that uh, Fairfax you know paid for. But, I mean, you also got to remember, just, just because Fairfax bought it doesn't necessarily make it right. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, they, they held a significant uh, chunk of this company already, so it could be said that they were averaging down even. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they, I'm sure they have somebody in there who knows far more about these patents than, than we do, and, and that's probably where they do see that value. Uh, three years ago, worth pointing out, three years ago, BlackBerry's market cap was north of $40 billion. Now it's being sold for 4.7. Also three years ago, Nokia's market cap was $58 billion, And it was, of course, recently, uh, handset and services business just sold for just over $7 billion. Yeah, I, I think Jason's point is right, which is that – and everyone's point here points here are pretty accurate, which is that shiny widgets do not remain shiny. You have to continuously reinvent. It's super hard. I don't even think I don't even like most of the pieces of BlackBerry's business, and I wouldn't think that Prem Watsa does. I hope he doesn't. Um, and to the extent he does, this is probably what, going to be one of those things he will look back on as not so smart in his investment legacy. Yeah, even Buffett bought Dexter Shoes. Remember that? Mm. I mean, that wasn't exactly. It didn't work out so well. That was no. a shiny widget move. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> shoes. Um, I'll tell you who's having a good week, though, is uh, BlackBerry CEO Thorsten Hines, because based on the report I saw, uh, he'll be jumping out of the plane with a parachute worth $55 million. Yeah. So, I mean, and guess what? Well done, Mr. Hines. Well <laughs> he done. He's sleeping well. Um, National Oil Well Varco is planning to spin off its distribution business next year. This is the smallest 
of uh, National Oil Well Varco's three units, uh, provides maintenance, repairs, and supplies to oil and natural gas companies. So I turn to the the energy guy at the table, Michelson, why are they doing this? You know, I like this deal, and I like it not just for National Oil Well Fargo, but the potential value in the spin. The distribution segment has kind of been the ugly stepchild of National Oil Well Fargo's segments for a very, very long time. Their margins are relatively small compared to its much larger segments. They're also a little bit more volatile because Nav has been acquisitive within the segment. I think it's actually a hidden gem. Um, they serve as something of a one-stop shop for their customers, and that is all the, the big drillers. They have consumable parts to their rigs, and they wear out. And so if you are one of the larger distributors right here, there are two critical competitive advantages you bring to the table. The first is scale because you, know, you have a huge fixed cost base. And the second are network effects. To the extent you stock more parts, your service offering is more attractive for your customers and vendors are more likely to deal with you. Um, and so they're, really also, they're also very attractive recurring revenue dynamics to this business. I think this is a classic spin here where you have the potential for margin improvements because they're relatively slim compared to some of their peers. You're going to see a market that should better appreciate the strengths of this business and the shares should appeal to a different investor base than one who would typically own National Oil Well Varco shares. So I really like this, and I'll be interested to see how it comes off. Yeah, I, you know, I actually agree wholeheartedly here with Mikey. I mean, th- this makes a lot of sense. I mean, National Oil Well Varco, up until this point, really took advantage of their scale to build out this distribution part of the business. And I mean, just to sort of put some numbers around the margin differentials uh, that Mike was talking about there. I mean, the, the rig. Uh, segment that the National Oil Well Varco maintains, which is the biggest, one of the, you know, the biggest part of the business, uh, operating margins around twenty three percent or so, and this distribution parts is more in the neighborhood of four four and a half. Uh, but you know, in spinning this off, in sort of in this tax efficient way here, where you're going to essentially get shares of one company and shares of the other company, it's kind of like what Fortune Brands did a little while back with Beam and Fortune Home and Security, right. which you know, it's going to give each part of the business the opportunity to focus on what they do best. It doesn't change really the dynamics of the competitive advantages the businesses have in the first place, and and I think that I think that Mike's right. The shareholders are going to are going to have, have an opportunity to realize some some excellent gains from holding onto both shares. Does it make National Oil Well Varco's stock potentially more valuable if the lowest margin part of the business is now no longer going to be part of the equation? I think that's absolutely the case for the very simple fact that the margins have been volatile in this segment and not because they have been an inconsistent performer so much as it has been the fact that they've been doing a lot of acquisitions. And so you acquire a lot of fixed costs and then you got to go ahead and take them out when you're putting distributors together. Um, National Oil Well Varco their margins are going to look a lot bigger, just like Jason said. And also, this is a pure play oil services company in a very specific and discrete realm of the market. Those investors that liked that before are going to like it even more. I would expect, at least initially, that you're going to see the distribution segments, shares sold down. It is a much smaller part of the business. And those folks who own National Oil Well Fargo, this is just hypothesizing on my part, but they aren't owning it for the distribution segment. And so if the shares end up sold down or they come off cheap, I would be a happy buyer of them. Uh, the big deal of the day is Applied Materials, which is merging with Tokyo Electron to form a $29 billion chip-making equipment 
monster, frankly. It's flashy. Uh, it, it is flashy. Uh, it's also doing good things for applied materials stock. This this seems like uh, one of those deals that at least initially is getting a lot of approval on Wall Street. Shares of applied materials hitting a five-year high this morning. That said, this is a stock that <laughs> uh, maybe I'm damning with faint praise with that one because it's 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 not like it's shot to the moon. I, I no. think that it was up seven eight percent something like that. This mm-hmm. does this in the wake of what we just talked about with National Oil Well Varco. Does this make Applied Materials a more attractive stock? Is bigger better here, or is this still a company that you just sort of look at, Jason, and say, "No, that's that's nice for them, but I'm I'm not necessarily all that interested." I kind of more on the latter. You know, it's nice for them, I guess. But when I look at, at this business, you know, in the bigger picture, I mean, it is becoming very commoditized. Uh, I mean, you look at applied materials and what they've done to date over the past five years. The the, the stock has woefully underperformed the market. I mean, top line revenue is is actually down. Uh, so then, you know, I, when I see these kinds of deals, you know, I mean, you have to ask the question: Why are they doing it? And I think the reason here is plain and simple. I mean, they're doing this in order to sort of buy growth and consolidate in order to maybe take a bit more advantage of economies of scale. So from that perspective, it probably works out okay. Uh, but again, I, I don't see anything here that really fundamentally changes the picture and makes me think, oh, wow, this is all of a sudden going to be just this tremendously profitable business and, and we're going to see you know the top-line revenues take off to the moon. I mean, I'd rather look at something like a Qualcomm that maintains this huge patent portfolio and these sky-high margins uh, as opposed to something like this. And with all due respect to the people at Applied Materials, that just strikes me as among the most boring names in all of the public <laughs> markets. I mean, if you're going to merge, shouldn't they also think about rebranding? Applied Electron. That's kind of sexy. Huh? It, uh, it's certainly a lot yeah. sexier than Applied Materials. That just sounds like a generic – that is. That's a completely generic name. Right. I think, you know, I do like this deal from a strategic standpoint. And the reason I do is when you look at a lot of these chip maker, the, the fab companies – Scale really is king right here because what you have, you have two things. First, you have these huge manufacturing facilities, which are very costly to build. They're highly specialized, and they have a huge fixed cost base. So you have to go ahead and scale them. This allows Applied Materials and Tokyo Electron to go ahead and expand their footprint, be closer to their customers. The other thing, and that's kind of part and parcel to it, is a lot of the big chip-making uh I guess those that make the wares in the chip making business, mm-hmm. they're effectively speaking embedded with the large chip makers. They have R and D staff that basically live on site. They're continuously talking to their customers. They fund huge R and D budgets and they adapt and sort of mold their product portfolio to what the chip makers want. Right now, that only strengthens that position. The compliant combined applied materials, Tokyo Electron, they'll be about a twenty five percent market share. So you know, I think I think the competitive position of the combined entity comes out stronger. I don't really like the shares from a valuation standpoint. And to Jason's point, the execution end of the business, it hasn't exactly been stellar. Valuation, the combined entity comes off at about 20 times cash flow. That's not exactly something that's getting me excited for a $29 billion company. Yeah. Uh, it is not a public company yet. And it's entirely possible it won't be. But at the moment, Chrysler has filed to go public. And let me just read directly from uh, a story uh, Bill Vlasic wrote uh, for the New York Times website, for their deal book website, uh, because I think he uh, wonderfully illustrates the challenge here. Bill Vlasic writes, 
Chrysler filed for a public stock offering on Monday, acting only under pressure from its second largest shareholder, a trust set up to provide medical coverage for 115,000 retired auto workers and their relatives. Ordinarily, Chrysler's plan would be caused to celebrate the automaker's comeback from its government bailout and bankruptcy in 2009, but it is acting only after negotiations stalled between Fiat, which controls Chrysler, and the trust over the purchase of the trust minority stake in Chrysler. The offering could be canceled if Fiat and the trust reach a deal. So, Jason, we essentially have uh, the latest move in a chess game between the Auto Workers Trust and Chrysler. And the CEO of Chrysler, or I guess of Fiat, is now in the position of, on the one hand, trying to push down the value of the company in his negotiations with the auto workers union, while at the same time, presumably, he's going to be propping up the stock, or, or I don't want to use the word hype, but, but talking about why it's a great value uh, for the public markets. Is it me? Like, every time I hear Chrysler, like, I can't help but think of, my mind immediately just goes to, like, that Seinfeld episode where... Costanza buys John Boyd's car. Yes. Driving around in John Boyd's car, <laughs> the LeBaron. I mean, that's just – that's what I think of when I think of Chrysler. Maybe that's their best moment. I don't know. I mean, to me, Chrysler <laughs> is just utterly uninspiring from so many dynamics. And, uh, you know, they're, they're losing market that, share. You know what? In defense of Chrysler, that's not their – I mean – I I, I think that's their best moment. Their best moment is, is an episode of maybe, Seinfeld? May, well, what maybe about, it's what the about fact the that Walter, maybe it's the fact that Walter White's driving a Dodge Charger. Right? What about what what driving? I, he, and it's a nice car. Yeah. Uh, what about the LeBaron, the convertible? Remember that? Well, wow. that was that was um, John Boyd's car. That was was the, it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, what about the comeback of this company? I, that, it, that, I will give you that. It is, it is amazing to actually think that they are still somewhat relevant because everything we've heard – Ever since, ever since the the bankruptcies and then the subsequent uh, financial crisis was Ford and GM, Ford and GM. But you know, I mean, this goes to show the dangers inherent in you know going ahead and saying, well, this this UAW fund was supposed to be funded with cash, and because of the financial crisis, they couldn't do that. So then they funded it with you know with. Uh, what was it? Equity or debt that was tied to equity, these to yes. these companies? Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I, I I personally would not want. You know my my obligation to be you know contingent upon the the automaker's performance. So I, I think you know let's apply a little bit of context here and you just see how screwed the UAW is. The price they're asking for on an EV to EBITDA basis, um, after you take into account Chrysler's post retirement benefits, which are not insubstantial, they're eight point nine billion dollars. Yeah. Um, they're basically asking six times EV to EBITDA, which more or less assumes that you know Chrysler is going to more or less hold water as a going concern business. They might decline a little bit, but they're, they're going to remain, relatively speaking, relevant. I just don't see that when you consider the dynamics of this business. I mean, it's just highly competitive, super discretionary, and they're plagued by excess capacity. And then moreover, oh, wait, you have product design. You have to support a huge dealer network. You have to have distribution. It's hard. And not to mention the changing dynamics just of of the the cars themselves. I mean, we're going to natural gas and hybrids and electrics, and it just seems like when you look at 
your Teslas and GMs and Fords of the world, I mean, they're the ones who are who are at least we see spearheading those movements. Whereas, yeah, I mean, Chrysler, yeah, again, I mean, to, to your point, they have certainly been able to tread water and perform very well. They're still quite small when you compare it, when you compare them even to Tesla today. I mean, Tesla's. Which you know, for better or worse, is a twenty billion dollar company. GM <laughs> is you know fifty billion, Ford sixty some odd billion, and so you know Chrysler there is is ten billion, and I think the combined entity there with Fiat would certainly give them maybe a bit more of an international type of market share uh, opportunity there. But Do you even want that though? Who makes money uh, on their European operations well, right and now? And that's uh. just it. Many many don't, and we're seeing that that's been what has held a lot of these these companies back. Over but the past we have years. seen an increased appetite for automaker stocks. And yeah. all you need to do is look at what General Motors shares have done over the last couple of years to realize that, you know what? Chrysler stock, it, it, I'm, I'm not saying bet on them, but just from the standpoint of the stock, I'm also saying I wouldn't bet against this I, I, you know, I wouldn't say bet against it either, but this is just the business where if you were to go ahead and sit down and say, this is the price I'm paying for Chrysler's business, I don't know how anyone has a strong opinion whether or not that's going to be a successful investment at the proposed valuation. Yeah, and, and I don't know that this is an IPO that will necessarily happen either. I mean, right. I'm sure that the bankers are all kind of in their in their back room hoping it does sure. because they're the ones that win from it. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's I, I think that really if you look at the very big picture of this, I mean, I think it just goes all the way back to sort of the lesson here and just the amazing shortcomings of sort of that old school way of thinking and how uh, promises that the UAW made to its employees for many years down the road, you you you. You have to be very careful of overpromising because it's very easy to underdeliver, underdeliver, especially when you're considering, you know, finance and economics and many controls that are well outside of your control. So, uh, you know, let that be let be a lesson to all of us. It's just still I, I can't get over how hilarious it is that he's the CEO of Chrysler and Fiat, and now he's basically in the position where he's just kind of bidding against himself. Like the agency problems here, whole. Yeah, the ballet moves that uh, CEO Sergio uh, Marchionne is going to have to pull off here are, are among, other, among other things, they're going to be worth watching. Yeah, yes. It's an amazing <laughs> It'll story. It'll be fun to watch this play out. All right. Mike Olson, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. Cheers. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. Show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Yeah.